For Delaware State of the Arts, I'm Andy Truscott. My guest today is Bud Martin, the artistic director of the Delaware Theater Company. Over his 10 highly successful seasons at DTC, he directed more than 20 plays and musicals, including Outside Mullinger, Honk, St. Joan, Sanctions, Dare to be Black, Hetty Feather, White Guy on the Bus, which transferred to New York, The War of the Roses, The Explorers Club, Putting It Together with the Delaware Symphony Orchestra, Love Letters, Rest in Pieces, The Story of My Life, Lend Me a Tenor, Any Given Monday, South Pacific, and The Outgoing Tide, which also transferred to New York. Coming next, Martin will direct One Man, Two Governors by Richard Bean. The British farce will run in February of 2023. But I'm thrilled to have you here. And it's been obviously a momentous and long-standing 10 years that you've been there at the theater. And uh, I wonder if we can just reflect back on some of your favorite moments at <laughs> Delaware Theater Company and how you've seen the theater grow. Yeah, well, I think you said the right word. It was momentous. <laughs> um, no, it's been, a, it, 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 I actually came here almost 11 years ago, but we lost a season due to COVID. So it, it, this is my 10th season. Um, you know, I think uh, the first time I got involved with Delaware Theater Company, I was um, I had produced a play on Broadway with Laura Linney called Time Stand Still that I wanted to direct at Act Two Playhouse, where I was the producing artistic director at the time. And but I wanted a co-production partner, and uh, I called down here and met with my predecessor to talk about co-producing it, and um, she agreed. And we rehearsed it here and started here and then moved the show to act two. And while I was here, it was clear that the theater was really in trouble. And I met one of the, I guess the existing board chair and he asked me what I thought they should do. They were thinking of closing the theater and just running the education department and trying to raise some money and reopen it. And I said, well, if you, if you close the theater, who's going to give you any money to reopen it? So he asked me if I thought I could save it because I had done a similar mission at Act Two, only on a much smaller scale. And, um, and I thought, well, if I can, I get to work in this beautiful theater. I'm only, I live only 15 miles away. I don't have to convince anybody to hire me to direct. So I, I gave it a shot. And um, I would say it was a big struggle in getting audiences to come back. We were, I guess the theater had about 1,100 subscribers at the time, um, which we got up to 2,400 just before COVID. Probably the real turning point, and I think one of the major things that made people sit up and take notice was when we did Diner. Um, Diner was the biggest show we had ever done up to that point. Um, it was fully automated, so we had to send some of our tech folks to New York to learn how to program that. The set was very expensive. There were Broadway designers. It was a Broadway director, choreographer. But most importantly, Cheryl Crow wrote the music and Barry Levinson, who wrote the movie, wrote the script. And they were both working here and in Wilmington at the time. And um, I think the fact that those two artists were here in Wilmington and we did that show. And when the lights came up and the diner, the front of the diner moved by itself, and then all the banquettes came down and the ceiling flew off, we used to get an applause almost every night. I will say that I called my wife when we were in tech and I said, we may have to be pushing the diner downstage. We're struggling here. <laughs> but it turned out to be, I think it turned out to be a real um major 
event for us. And, um, you know, we got reviewed by the New York Times. It was uh, really special to have the Times come down. The Washington Post came up. Um, I remember being on the train on the way home and Thayer DuPont called me and said, um, we just got a review in the New York Times. I said, I know I'm reading it. I'm trying to figure out whether it's good or bad. He said, well, who cares? They reviewed it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was really a, a time, I think, when uh, all eyes really moved to Wilmington at a time, you know, pre-President Biden, right, when all the cameras came to Wilmington. This was an opportunity to show how the arts could really uh, shine in Wilmington, Delaware. It was, um, it was also the first season in the history of Delaware Theatre Company that we did a million dollars in ticket sales. Diner did $400,000 in ticket sales when I came in. At the end of the 2012 season, the preceding 12 months did about 330,000 in ticket sales. Diner did more than that whole season, and we tripled the ticket sales that season. So I think that was really the pivotal point. People often say, what was your favorite show to direct? And it's funny, every time I'm directing a show, I say, well, this one's my favorite. Yeah. Um, there, uh, I guess there are a couple of shows that I think that's that season the explorers club was more fun than i've ever had working on a show um i i would say there are two bruce graham plays that i directed one of which we took to new york white guy on the bus and sanctions but um those plays changed me i mean i've always thought that as a director i wanted to try to find a way to impact an audience to either you know, entertain them, number one. Number two, really make them think, possibly change the way they looked at things. And those two plays made me look at things differently. I think I really, on White Guy on the Bus, I had to really examine my white privilege and sure. get a better understanding of, of institutional racism. And, and it really did change the way I felt and the way I paid attention to what's going on in our society. Yeah, I have a lot of things that I'm really thrilled about. I guess the most recent thing that I directed, Brighton Beach Memoirs, was you know my my bunch of my favorite people in the show, and it was it it had everything. You know, it was funny, it was warm, it was challenging, it was um, you could see the conflicts and the struggles, and you know now I'm having a blast doing <laughs> one man two governors. Well, and I think it's always something we never think of in the rehearsal room, right? Which is uh, this these group of artists coming together for a short period of time uh, and kind of stripping away their, their concerns, their worries, and really digging into the material and becoming in some capacity a family. Um, and so being able to enjoy that time together, being able to, to sit there and smile, sit there and laugh at the moments where you might not have done so are really important moments. You, yeah. as you, as you craft the season, it's clear we're not going to see a season every year that is blockbuster, blockbuster musical. Um, between yourself and Matt Silva, who is is coming in uh, to, to succeed you in the next year, how do you guys go about deciding what performances or what shows uh, will be in each season? That's my biggest worry every season is making sure we program it <laughs> correctly. Um, and I would say that, you know, post COVID, there's a there's a different mentality um, with regards to what people really want to see. When I came in here, one of the things that was that enthused me was people really liked to see new work. They liked to see drama. And um, 
they liked the fact that they could see things here that they wouldn't see in other places. And I loved sort of programming for that. I learned pretty quickly that you want to open the season with something that's excites people a lot and gets people talking because that's what gets people coming back to the season. And when we close the season, we want another uplifting, inspirational piece because that's when we're selling subscriptions for the following season. Sure. In between, I think it's, it's integral to us to do what I always refer to as the mission play, um, which is looking at our local community and identifying issues that we, we should bring to people's attention and, make them think about. And so I try to find a play that does that. Um, and we try to have a balance of uh, musicals, comedies, and dramas. I would say the musicals and the comedies sell better. So we generally try to, you know, schedule our drama in the um, a winter slot, because we find that, you know, we, we run the risk of weather and people want to you know, leave town when it's really cold. And if that's the one that's not going to sell really well, then we, you know, I'll do it in there. But um, what we're finding now, and I guess after last season being our first season back after COVID, um, people want to be entertained. Mm -hmm. So doing the heavy thought provoking character driven play is probably not on the horizon for next season. <laughs> sure. More, you know, topical stuff. We've developed a niche for doing new musicals that that have, you know, potential Broadway aspirations. And the reason that we've been able to be successful at that is that we could never do a musical of that size um, without support from commercial producers. So usually a commercial producer will budget the show. It'll be a lot more than we could afford. And then they put up the money we, we say we'll apply our box office and what is it, the difference between that and the budget they, they give us as enhancement. So our audience gets to see something that nobody ever saw before. It's a bigger show than we can do. So it generally is technically superior to anything we could do because we can afford it. Um, right now, Broadway's, you know, struggling. So I think finding the new musical that can afford you know, that where the producers feel comfortable putting up that kind of money and or raising that kind of money is a little challenging right now. We had to cancel one because the producer couldn't come up with the enhancement money. And we rescheduled, you know, something I said, well, after South Pacific, we're probably never going to do another book musical because we can, you know, we can't really afford it. And we'll, so we'll do these new ones where producers will give us the money producer couldn't raise the money. So we batted a bunch of shows around and we decided which we could get the rights to, to do Man of La Mancha. Well, all of a sudden tickets started flying out the door to see Man of La Mancha. I thought, well, that's indicative of what's going on around the country. People, you know, it's a title they recognize. It's a play they knew of. So they want to come see it. Um, well, and as we think of the talent and as you talk about these enhanced productions, it's important for the listeners to know that these these musicals are not just local actors. While they may be cast in them, these musicals that are especially enhanced also have, as I would call them, celebrity Broadway actors, but actors that are currently on Broadway in shows like Moulin Rouge, in um, touring productions or the Broadway productions of Mean Girls. DTC has had the longest running Belle from Beauty and the Beast uh, on its stage. So um, these are not just, um, you know, local or Philadelphia-based actors, but they are oftentimes the actors that these producers would be looking to see uh, on a New York stage, which really gives Wilmingtonians or Delawareans the opportunity to see Broadway talent at, at just a fraction of the cost. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It is, 
you know, our location is so great for New York actors. They can be here in under two hours on the train while they're here, you know, almost consistently during rehearsal. Once that we start performances, they can go home after a Sunday matinee and not come back till Tuesday night or Wednesday morning for, and it's, it's an easy commute for them. So, and then also it helps we can bring people from New York down to see these shows. So when we're doing yeah. new work and we hope that they'll get legs and move somewhere else, it's very easy for somebody to jump on a train and come down and see it. So our location has been really helpful to getting that kind of talent here. As we think for yourself to what's next, as we hang up our hat post uh, One Man, Two Governors, what's coming up? What are you uh, excited to be able to do now with some free time? I haven't been full time this season. You know, when we made Matt executive director, I uh, just as artistic director really only focused on the place. And I keep thinking, I'm I, where does this time go that I thought I was going to have? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, I, you know, I'm certainly not going to sit back and put my feet up. I think one of the things that made me start to realize that um, my life has always been about me and I've always been too busy to do other things. And my wife has always wanted to travel. And, you know, I've always said, I can, I got to work. And um, so I'm, I'm hoping that I'll spend more time with her and do some traveling. And I don't want to give up, you know, working completely, but so I will direct a show every now and then. And um, I think I'm supposed to direct one next season. And and I'm going to stay on the board for a little while because I, I I work too hard. I have all the confidence in the world and the team that's here, which is why I felt the timing for me to step back was really good. We had a great team in place. Financially, we're in better shape than we had been for a long time. I'm happy to stay on board on the board level and see what I can do to continue to be helpful and advocate for the theater. Just not come to work every day. <laughs> yeah, I get that. That would be nice. As we think to One Man, Two Governors, can you give us a little bit of an idea about what the comedy is about and what audiences might leave the theater walking away thinking? Hopefully they walk away with pains in their side from laughing. Um, it's a, it is based on an old Commedia dell'arte play called uh, The Servant of Two Masters, but it's been rewritten into the 1960s in, in Brighton, uh, England. Um, and it's about a guy who is constantly hungry and can't make enough money to satisfy his his urge to eat and um, finds himself actually being able to take on two different masters that he becomes sort of the servant for, let's say. But anyway, he's but he can't let the other guy know. So he's running around trying to serve one. And the conflict in the first act really comes around the confusion of his trying not to let the other guy know that he's working for somebody else. There's a the two principal characters other than than Francis, who is the servant, are two people that are in love but are, are disguised as being other people. So there's star-crossed lovers, there's crazy characters, they're all based on comedia characters. You know, Francis is the Harlequin character, there's the lovers, there's the mistaken identity. It's full of physical comedy. And one of the first things I did was do some research and find somebody who had a lot of experience staging physical comedy. And by that, I mean Pratt Falls, fights, people falling down steps, getting hit by doors, a, a lot of that kind of stuff. So the comedy is not just in the writing. There is a lot of comedy in the writing, but there's it's, it's very funny physically. And I, I should tell everybody that it is absolutely safe. That's one of the reasons why we brought John Balomo on to help make sure of that. There's you know, there's a knife fight, there's a 
you know, a guy gets beat up by the cops. There's a, a lot of farce that takes place in it and a lot of physical humor. So I think I don't think there's any moral to the story other than the fact that, you know, the the guy usually gets the girl at the end. And in both cases, all three couples, the guys get the girl and uh, the fathers uh, get away without, you know, get their kids married off without having to worry about spending too much money. And it's uh, just a lot of fun. We have a what we call a skiffle band that will be playing scene changes. It's a very big show for us. It's the largest non-musical we're doing. There's a lot of different scenes. We have a lot of things flying in the air, moving in the air. Um, so we have a, a little band that is going to play music during the scene changes and the transitions. And some of the things that they'll be using were are sort of handmade. They're not just all your traditional music instruments. And the cast will do, you know, every once in a while, we'll sing a little song between scene changes. So it's just a lot of fun. Generally, we start rehearsals doing table work where we read and we talk about scenes and we, you know, sort of peel away the layers of the onion when we deal with characters and their relationships and conflicts. And I said, this is one play where we don't have to do any of that because it's not really, there's there's no real intellectual challenge in this play. So we got right on our feet after we did the first reading of the play. I would assume for those that have seen performances at Delaware Theatre Company, this would be very similar to like Lend Me a Tenor or the Explorers Club, right? In the Yes. It's funny. One of the actors in the Explorers Club reached out to me when he saw we were going to do this and said, is there any chance of getting the Explorers Club cast back? We actually do have three of the Explorers Club cast in the show, but it is that style. Yeah. Right. It's the door slamming, banging, and you know, mistaken identity of, of uh, Lend Me a Tenor. And it's the the throwing of the glasses and the catching them before they hit the floor of, you know, from the Explorers Club. One Man, Two Governors will be there. It'll open on February 1st, run through February 19th of 2023. Following that, as you had mentioned, we'll have Man of La Mancha, uh, April 12th through April 30th of 2023, with maybe the opportunity to extend. Maybe. I hope so. Maybe. For those that are interested in tickets, you can go to DelawareTheater.org. And I would assume during Man of La Mancha and maybe One Man, Two Governors, they can learn more about next season and how to become a subscriber. Would that be true? That's true. We're going to start selling subscriptions March 1st, um, which will be right after we close One Man, Two Governors. But I think Matt and I are going through and trying to nail down the season now and get the rights to the shows that we want to do. And if we can get that solidified before the end of One Man, Two Governors. We'll certainly announce it, but definitely March 1st. And then we'll be selling subscriptions during Man of La Mancha. Well, I'm thrilled to see a theater that has started at a firehouse on King Street, then moved to a meatpacking plant on the riverfront, has literally <laughs> taken uh, Wilmington by storm and will continue to in the future years. Uh, Bud, we're thrilled to have had you here for 10 years. We hope you'll stay uh, around. We know you're right over the border in PA. Uh, and thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Andy. I really appreciate it. Delaware State of the Arts is a weekly podcast that presents interviews with arts organizations and leaders who contribute to the cultural vibrancy of communities throughout Delaware. Delaware State of the Arts is provided as a service of the Delaware Division of the Arts in partnership with News Radio 1450 WILM and 1410 WDOV. The Delaware Division of the Arts, a branch of the Delaware Department of State, is committed to supporting the arts and cultivating creativity to enhance the quality of life in Delaware. 
Together with its advisory body, the Delaware State Arts Council, the division administers grants and programs that support arts programming, educate the public, increase awareness of the arts, and integrate the arts into all facets of Delaware life. To find out more about the division, visit arts.delaware.gov.